Good morning. How are you guys doing this morning? Man, well, I'm Pastor Anthony, like Israel said, and I am the pastor of the Vine Campus of New Day Community Church. So normally I am secluded over in downtown Kalamazoo on Locust Street, and we have service every Saturday night at 7 o'clock. But occasionally they open the doors and they let me wander out, and I find my way to the different campuses, and I'm happy to be here this morning. Man, so we are in the upward journey. Let me just say on a personal note, like I was back there and I asked if I could get a water. And uh, they were like, of course you can have a water. Yeah, I, your name just totally slipped my mind. I'm embarrassed. Paula, thank you. And you're like, you're the preacher. You can have a water, man. Just take it for crying out loud. And I just feel so honored every time I come here by you guys. And I want you to know that I, it's just amazing. I love that. So thank you. It might have just seemed like a little water, but I was like, oh, wow, that's great. So that was very encouraging for me. Well, we are in the upward journey. We are halfway through, and if you look at our neat graphic, we had the inward journey. Those are the in-pointing arrows, right, for four months. Now we're in the upward journey, and the upward journey has a catchphrase. And I would be remiss if I didn't go over the catchphrase and the verse that we get the upward journey from, and that is 2 Corinthians 3.18. Come on, clicker. You'd be nice to me. There we go. Beholding and becoming. This is the catchphrase. Paul writes to the Corinthians, guys, this is what we need to do. This is what we need to be about. We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Again, that's 2 Corinthians 3.18. And what Paul is saying there is, look, you become like the people you associate with, right? associate with God, get to know God, spend time with God, learn about God's character, and let God rub off on you. This is the goal. So for us in the upward journey, it is primarily about learning about God. We did a series on his attributes. Now we're doing a series on the Psalms. What do we see about God in the Psalms? But let's not forget, part of the goal is also to become like what we learn about. Amen? So there needs to be some sort of impact, some sort of real-life application. And as I said, We're doing a mini-series on God in the Psalms for the month of July. And the psalm that I picked, one of my very favorites, is Psalm 46. And I'm going to be talking today about what it means that the Lord is our security. So, a psalm, essentially, is just a very old Hebrew poem put to music and used for worship. So if you read modern day poetry, a lot of it, super angsty. Anybody write super angsty poetry when they're a teenager? Was, am I the only one in this room? Jamie, I suspect you. Come on now, a little bit, a little bit. All right, so there are some recurring themes, right? Like angry about stuff, sad about stuff, and pretty much back and forth. Occasionally, I regret stuff. Occasionally, I want stuff, you know? The Psalms are much the same, and if you've ever felt that way, you already know an awful lot about the context of the Psalms. Amen? If you've been sad, you understand a sad Psalm. If you've ever thought something was incredibly unjust and you wanted God to do something about it, you understand those Psalms. Some historical background about this particular Psalm might be necessary, and we'll talk more about it later. But this Psalm was probably written when Jerusalem was under siege. Probably written when you woke up in the morning And you looked out and beyond the wall, you saw very real enemies that actually wanted to destroy you for real. So let's bear that in mind as we talk about this psalm. But first, let's read it. Sound good? Excellent. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, 
Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar in foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. And Selah there just means rest, ponder, contemplate what we just read. Stanza two. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. And the third stanza. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Awesome psalm. And I suspect many of us would know that psalm from that one line, right? Be still and know that I'm God. One of my favorite lines in all the psalms. Once I studied it, I was like, that is so much more awesome than I thought. And we'll get there. That's at the end. That's the big finale to the message but Psalm 46 is great, and it has three main points that I would like for you guys to get. And so I'm just going to tell them to you right off the bat. So there is no doubt. Nobody has to wonder, what did Pastor Anthony hope I went home with? This is it, guys. God is your security when the worst possible thing is actually happening. God is your security when the worst possible thing looks like it's about to happen. I know I misspelled it's. Be nice. It was, it was late. And God is your security because he intends to bring peace through total victory. He intends to win. The peace that God gives is not just the absence of conflict. There's peace because God is the decided victor. Amen? Those three things I want to unpack. But before we do that, let's talk about this theme that is in every single stanza of this poem. There's three chunks to this poem. They all say something about God being our refuge or God being our fortress. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about that before we go into these three main points. Verse 1 says, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. And the other two stanzas end with this theme. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And they say the same thing. Well, a refuge and a fortress are both things that you go inside to seek shelter, right? There's a little bit of a difference, though, between a refuge and a fortress, and I think that we're going to see that the psalm writer did this on purpose. He starts with the idea of a refuge, and by the time you get to the end, God is a fortress, a strong tower, a mighty citadel, right? I think that's on purpose. But let's talk about this refuge verse. What, is, what does this refuge word mean? And honestly, it, it's not surprising. It means exactly what you think it might mean. It's a refuge. It's some sort of shelter from rain or storm or danger. But just like it represents a physical shelter, this can also be used figuratively to talk about some sort of emotional shelter, a spiritual thing that you're putting your trust in or your hope in. And we're going to discover that this whole psalm works if there's a very real army outside your gate that is physical and real and wants to kill you. But it also works if there's emotional stress and emotional turmoil. The imagery is both literal and figurative. And here are some verses to illustrate that fact. In Job 24.8, Job says, They are drenched by the mountain rains and hug the rocks for lack of shelter. It's a rain shelter. Pretty clear cut. Here it is used figuratively in Isaiah 4.5-6. to 6. 
Over everything, the glory will be a canopy. It will be a shelter and a shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and hiding place from the storm and rain, both literally and figuratively. It works. I seem to be belaboring this point, so I will add a neat picture. (laughs) This is the A-frame. Now, my wife and I didn't know we were ill-prepared to do the 13-mile bar trail up Pikes Peak until we got there. So it took us two days. Some of you fit people, maybe Reuben and Katrina, it might only take you one. I don't know, you could just jog up the mountain, but we could not. You know, so we had to make base camp halfway up at day one, and then, you know, the, the second day was when we actually took the hill, so to speak. But the bar trail is very dangerous. Outside Magazine actually rated it one of the most dangerous trails in America, not because there are cliffs, not because there are strenuous climbs and you might fall, but because of lightning. Lightning. Something about Pikes Peak's location right there on the front range makes it extremely susceptible to storms that come up out of nowhere and zap people every year. So they say you need to get up onto the top of the mountain and find a way below the tree line or off the mountain by noon. And it's so dangerous that right at the tree line, a little over 11,000 feet, they constructed this A-frame. And this is literally a refuge. This is a shelter from the storms that could pop up at any moment, seemingly without warning, and you're supposed to hoof it down as fast as you can and get to the refuge so that you don't die, literally, from a storm. Is that intense or what? So this is actually it's pretty cool, and it's much bigger than it looks. Stay off Pikes Peak, afternoon. Actually, I'll tell you what, there, it's so weird. We got up there, and we were just rough and stinky and ragged, right, from taking the bar trail up. There's a highway that goes up the other side, and there's like a trolley car that goes up as well. So we get up there, and, we're, and there's this odd mix of people that are barely making it, you know, like heaving against the wall. And there's these shiny tourists that are like looking at all of us weird, stinky hikers. It was bizarre. And there's a gift shop. You can get donuts. I'm like, I'm trying to live, you know. But anyway, that was a really unique experience. But yeah, drive up, probably. I guess that would work. Okay, God is our refuge. This is, he's our shelter, literally and figuratively. Amen. Let's talk about point number one. God is our security when the worst possible thing is actually happening. Let's read this stanza. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, and though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. You know, it is crazy. Thank you for saying that. It's hard to wrap our minds around this in modern day, but this theme of chaos, I I feel like I talk about it at least every other message that I ever preach, because I like the Old Testament. But it's all over the Old Testament. And this is describing chaos. Literally, let's shrink it and let's talk about it. Boom. This is the absolute worst thing the psalm writer could imagine. If he pondered, what can I describe what, what is the worst possible thing that everybody could imagine? If, if I wanted to describe the worst case scenario, oh, it would be this. It would be the, the ocean rising up and destroying everything. It would literally be the earth reverting into a chaotic state of uncreation. You know, everybody in the audience would know, wow, that's literally the worst. Absolutely nothing could be worse than that. That's horrible. And he's saying, even if that was actually happening, if he was in the midst of it, it was not theory, He's on the mountain. He sees the ocean rising. Everything's crumbling, earthquakes. 
he says, even then, we will not be afraid. Why? Because the Lord is our refuge. That is astounding. And later on in the poem, the psalmist actually alludes to the fact that this imagery, this incredibly strong imagery, is probably used to represent a very real enemy that has the power to undo the kingdom of Israel. We learn later it's probably the Assyrians. This represents a real threat. And again, I can't say this enough, this is describing how God is our shelter, he's our security, he's our refuge, he's our hiding place, when the worst possible thing is actually happening. In the midst of it, the earth is shaking, the mountains are falling. God is our refuge and our security. Is that going to cut it if the mountain starts shaking? If there's some lightning, if there's some rain, you go to the nice wooden A-frame and you're safe. But if Pikes Peak itself is shaking and the oceans are rising up, I'm going to submit to you that this probably is not going to save my hide. So I don't need a refuge in that situation. What I need now is a fortress. I need a strong tower. I need a shelter that can take anything the, the oceans, anything the chaos of the enemy can throw at it. And I love this picture because if I could zoom in and show you, this little guy in the middle there in the bright shirt is leaning against the doorpost with his hands in his pockets. He's not concerned in the slightest. And I'm assuming that the people who took the picture, probably from a helicopter, were much more worried about their precarious situation than this guy. And I can only assume that's because he has faith in the lighthouse and this is not his first storm. He knows that that lighthouse is a faithful refuge, a faithful citadel, a faithful, faithful fortress. And so the ocean can do what he wants. He has faith in his strong tower. He has faith in what he puts his security in. So let's keep that image in mind instead of the A-frame. I think that one works a little bit better. And let's turn the focus on us. And let's ask, is there chaos in your life? Verse 2 says, we will not fear if the oceans rise and froth and foam and the mountain shakes. So let's tweak that. Let's say, I will not fear. If the worst possible thing is actually happening. Here's a sample. Not all of these are from my own life. That would have been way over the top. But some of them are. Maybe this is happening. Therefore, I will not fear those CPSs involved. I heard some nervous laughter. Hallelujah. Amen. I, I have dealt with them in the periphery of my life. No fun. Therefore, I will not fear, though I'm in the midst of a divorce, though my new boss hates me and is crazy. I will not fear, though I realized I can't beat the addiction. Talk to a lot of people who've had this, this realization. Step one, isn't it? I realize that I'm powerless. It's a hard day, though. I will not fear, though I can't find work and the savings are drying up. I will not fear, though I have to be out in two weeks and have no place to go. Or maybe... I will not fear, though my children are rebelling and breaking my heart. If you are in chaos, I do not have to convince you. Because you woke up this morning well aware of it, you came to church well aware of it, and unless something happens, and I hope it happens for you this morning, but you will go to bed tonight well aware of it, and wake up the next morning and repeat, and repeat, because your mountain is shaking, and the ocean is rising, and everything is crumbling. The worst possible thing is actually happening. You look out the window and there are very real enemies outside the wall and they are storming the castle of your life. 
I would submit to you that therefore I will not fear is a decision. This is where the psalmist starts. I'm using the worst possible imagery I can imagine. This is the worst possible thing. And I want everyone that's about to read this or sing this psalm for the purpose of worship to know, commit with me, says the psalmist, we will not fear, though the worst possible thing happens. Can we bow our heads and make that decision right now? Let's do that. And if you're new and you don't normally do this, I'll I'll teach you a trick right now. You kind of clasp your hands like this and you bow, close your eyes. And when I say amen, kind of nod a few times as you lift your head. Everybody will think you're a pro. But let's do this, seriously. Father God, we, you know there's chaos. The worst possible thing is actually happening. And if that's you, admit that to God. Stop trying to hide it and act like you don't feel like your mountain is shaking. Stop acting like, you know, the ocean isn't rising. Admit it, God, I'm in chaos. My life is crumbling. I feel like this is the worst possible thing, and I'm afraid. You could admit that to God. I'm afraid. But I want you to repeat after me in your head or out loud if you want to, but please, please make this commitment with me. Have, have the courage. Say, Lord, I will not fear because you are my security. Amen. Brief prayer response, but I want to build the rest of the message on that commitment, okay? I will not fear. And if that was hard for you, if you're struggling, if you're angry that I even brought it up, and if you're in chaos, you probably think I made that seem too simple. Skip by it too fast. You might be even angry at me because I'm acting like it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. Don't hear that. Come up to the prayer team. We want to love on you. We want to pray on you more. But I'm going to move on. God is also our security when it looks like the worst is about to happen. Maybe it's not happening right now, but man, it is sure on the horizon. Let's read this stanza. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. And she there means the city. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Let's shrink it again and talk about it. That is still really big. Let's shrink it again. There we go. That's much better. Okay. I like these clicker thingies. All right. This stanza and the next are probably best understood as written from the perspective of an ancient city that is under siege. It might not seem to make sense why with the river imagery and the dawn imagery that, you know, I think that. But I I just want to read from the Bible in Isaiah 37 the situation that a lot of scholars think, you know, made this poem be written. This was probably where they were at when they were inspired to write it. And the Assyrian army has laid siege to Jerusalem. They are the biggest dog on the porch. They are wiping out everyone. And now they're at your front door. And these guys have a reputation for being extremely brutal, extremely merciless, very violent. They're, they're, they're really not nice people. You don't want them outside your city. And it's unavoidable. Disaster is about to happen. The worst possible thing is right out there. And maybe it won't happen today, but they're here to stay. They're here to stay until it happens. Does that make sense? The leader of the Assyrians sends a nice little love letter to King Hezekiah, who happens to have the fortunate position of being the king of Israel during this fiasco. And this is what he says to Hezekiah. He says, Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you. 
by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. And then he says this, Behold, this is his resume. You've heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction. Shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed? And then he lists them, Gozan, Haran, Rezeph, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar. And this is the last paragraph. Where's the king of Hamath? Where's the king of Arpad? The king of the city of Sepharvaim? The king of Hena? Or the king of Iva? Period. That's it. That's the end of the letter. What's he saying? He's saying, don't be an idiot. None of these fake gods have saved anybody. They're all dead. Where are they? They're nowhere. We killed them. And now we're here. So how about you just surrender and make it easy? Wow. You know, King Hezekiah has a very interesting response. It actually mirrors the response of Jehoshaphat in my favorite chapter of the Bible, Second Chronicles 20. You should read that. We're not preaching on that today, but I want to plug it. It's really great. It says this, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers, read it, and Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Why did he do that? He's in a fortified city, but the city's not really his security, is it? It looks like the worst thing in the world's about to happen. I need to take this right to the source of my security, and that's not my walls, it's not my army, it's not my counselors. He didn't lock himself in the bathroom. He didn't play Xbox and forget about it. He spread it out before the Lord. Amen? That's awesome. So let's follow through on this. This is a great image from the Lord of the Rings. Amen for the Lord of the Rings. This is, if any Lord of the Rings fans in here, I'm like, yay, all right, woo. I see very energetic hands in the back from the kids. I'm, I would have been right there. So this is the assault on Minas Tirith, right? Minas Tirith is one of the most secure cities in Tolkien's world of Middle-earth. It is built literally into the face of a mountain. It's got walls on walls on walls. It's got this huge field in front of it that you could do battle on. It is very secure. But if Mordor was in front of your city, like these guys are here, and you saw hundreds of thousands of them with giant orcs and siege ramps, and you, you'd be scared, right? You'd start to ask yourself, am I secure enough here? Where is my security? Am I really trusting in these soldiers that are quaking in their boots? Am I really trusting in this city? Because suddenly, it looked secure yesterday before they got here, but now it's not looking so tight. You know what I mean? It's not looking so good. But Minas Tirith has one other thing going for it. If you are a super nerd, super nerd, and you were to look at a map of Middle Earth, you would notice, and I apologize for the slide quality, I had to blow this up, but right by Minas Tirith, which is the, the white circle in the center, is a, is a tiny little unobtrusive blue thing. Everybody see that? It's hard to see. It's not hard to see. It's a giant fat river. Big old river right by the city. Tolkien put a river there on purpose because Minas Tirith was supposed to be the, the ultimate fortress, right? The place that you could hold out and defend against anything. Why was the river so important? Well, Spurgeon says this. He says that, the great fear of an eastern city in a time of war was that the water supply should be cut off during a siege. If that were secured, the city could not hold out against attacks for an indefinite period. In this verse, Jerusalem, which represents the church of God, is described as well supplied with water to set forth the fact that in seasons of trial, all sufficient grace will be given to enable us to endure unto the end. 
It works perfect with a siege because the guy's saying, hey, good thing our river is going to supply us and we don't have to worry, right? But this is interesting because, I hate to tell you, Jerusalem doesn't have a river. There's no river. It's just a big city basically in the middle of nowhere in the desert. So what is the psalmist talking about? The river to the psalmist is the favor and the grace of God. It's the presence of the Almighty in the city. The Assyrians are surrounding them and they're cocky because they beat everybody else. And they must be thinking to themselves, these people don't even have a river. They can't even hold out for very long. And the psalmist wants you to know, oh, we've got a river. We've got a river. We've got a better river than any river you could see. And not only that, but it makes our hearts glad. It makes glad the city of God. We can hold out just fine. How can they hold out just fine? Because there's a very simple equation that if God is a source of favor and strength, and if God will not be moved, then the city that God lives in will not be moved. If God lives in you, if he's the king of your life, it doesn't matter how many Assyrians are out there, you will not be moved. Because God will not be moved. Where is God? Right here. And he will help you when the morning dawns. This is a beautiful imagery too. Because you know, if you're in a city under siege, if the worst people in the world are out there, if doom is impending, and it might not happen today, but it will probably happen tomorrow, what time are you most afraid of? Morning time. That's when the battle lines are drawn up. That's when people go to war. That's when it all starts. You stay up all night afraid of the battle that's going to come in the morning. And the psalmist wants you to know that that's exactly when God is going to step in. That's exactly when he's going to help you. When somebody needs to do the fighting, God is going to show up. The psalmist is saying, we've got a river. And when morning time comes and it comes to fight, we've got somebody that's going to handle that too. Because our security is not in these people and it's not in this place. And it works figuratively as well. Maybe you don't have literal Assyrians outside of your house. Probably not. I'm saying the odds are bad on that. But Psalm 35 might apply more. His anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. He will help you when the morning dawns. Do you know how this story with the Assyrians ends? They're so cocky. They think they've got Israel beat. The Israelites wake up in the morning and look outside and just see dead bodies. One of the most miraculous deliverances in the Old Testament. God just snaps his fingers. He speaks a word, and the earth melts. And they're done. They're gone. That is amazing deliverance. And then it says the nations are raging and tottering. I skipped ahead, but it was so good I couldn't help it. Look, raging, tottering, these words combined give the image of chaos. There's chaos in the ranks of the enemy. In stanza one, the author says, even if the whole world erupts in chaos, we don't have to worry about it. We don't have to worry because God is our security. Let the nations rage and the mountains crumble. That's fine. We know where we're hiding. We, we had our hands in our pockets. We're leaning against the wall. The ocean can do its thing. We're secure. And at the end of this stanza, the impending doom is in chaos. The Assyrians are in chaos. The Israelites know that the God who protects them can frustrate the attacks of the enemy can send those threatening things into chaos. And not only that, but he speaks a word and the earth melts. Wow! That's pretty decisive victory. You know, you've heard of like Armageddon, right? The last battle. Has anybody skipped to the end of the Bible and actually seen how the last battle plays out? It's not much of a fight. 
God decides it's over, and it's over. He speaks a word, and the earth melts. So, is there impending doom in your life? Are the Assyrians at the gate? Maybe you're not in the middle of the worst possible situation, but maybe you think it's coming tomorrow or the next day. And if this is you, if this is your life, I don't have to convince you because you know what? You woke up thinking about it. You're thinking about it right now. And unless something happens, and I hope it happens for you today, you'll go to bed thinking about it, and tomorrow you'll wake up and repeat. And this could be anything. You know, this is a, this is a stupid slide. This is the dumbest slide I think I've ever made. I give examples of what could be going wrong, and you're like, you know what? No one needs examples of impending doom. Like, it's either there or it's not, right? You wake up and you look out and you can see it. But I want to say this. If you feel surrounded, outnumbered, and endangered from anything, if the biggest dog on the porch, so to speak, is at your door, you need to know something. He will help you when the morning dawns. God will help you. Will. This is a certainty. And we need to believe it. Can we pray again? Let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus, we committed not to be afraid, Lord God. We gave you that chaos, Lord, and, and even those of us who have impending doom, Lord. Oh, the hammer might not fall today, but we're thinking it'll fall tomorrow or the next day, and we can't stop thinking about it. Our whole lives are revolving around it, God. We're, we can't help but obsess about this thing that's about to happen. We're sure of it, Lord God. But we decided we'll not be afraid. And Lord, right now, we choose to believe that you are, in fact, our help when morning comes. We choose to believe that when the fighting time comes, you will be the one who does the fighting. God, we choose to believe that even though we can't even see a river, that your favor and your grace and your help are real and they will come through. And we believe that if you are in this city, if you're in this life, if you're in this heart, we will not be moved because you will not be moved. Just repeat after me. Say, Lord, I take you at your word. And I look forward to your deliverance. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, it's going to happen. He speaks a word, the earth melts. Let me give a brief testimony about that. Do I have time for brief testimonies? Excellent, I'm going to do it. So <laughs> I had two terrible custody battles with my now 13-year-old. Everything's good now. My relationship with his mom is good. My relationship with him is good. Everything's great. It was awful, really bad for about eight years. Dominated my life. Dominate, I mean, I couldn't help but think about it all the time. Barely had the mental space to think about anything else. Our relationship was positively adversarial. The text messages and the phone calls I got were just wicked, evil, nasty things. You know, I mean, two custody battles. The first one didn't quite solve it. We left some, some loose ends, and those came back to bite us about a year and a half, and it was just probably the least fun experience of my entire life. Came home one night, and there's a cop car and another car serving me papers to show up in court like less than a week later. I mean, it was really nasty. And if you've never had somebody give you a letter that says a guy in a black robe wants to make a key decision about your life at this date, show up or you're in trouble, you know, that elicits certain special emotions. that it's, it's hard to talk about if you've never been there. And I'm not a criminal. I've never been to criminal court or anything like that. That was my first real encounter with, you know, the capital L law. Man, awful, impending doom, worst thing in the world. I got a phone call one day, and I'm not going to go into details, but if you want details, ask me afterwards, and I'll happily share. One phone call, the whole thing evaporated. One phone call, 
And suddenly I'm in my lawyer's office having this conversation. Do I press this advantage or do we just let it go? You know, that's a lot different than being afraid. One phone call. My whole life was changed. It's never gone back. It's only gotten better. He spoke a word and the earth melted. That impending doom was gone. The Assyrians were dead. Looked out my window and they were horizontal instead of vertical. Just happened. I had a debt I forgot about. This is my other testimony. I won't go on forever. But is anybody, you don't have to raise your hand. Do you ever have somebody call you and say, hey, you owe us a bunch of money. You haven't paid. Your time's up. We're just going to take the money. We're going to take it out of your paycheck. And we can because this is your bank account information and we're going to go ahead and do that if you don't pay us right now. I thought I consolidated all my loans. Must have missed one. And then I moved to a different state. So they must be thinking this guy's running away and all this. Oh, man, I've never had anybody talk to me like that. If you've never had that conversation, I imagine it would be difficult to understand. Again, the very special and unique emotions that arise in that situation. Man, humiliation, rage, anger. You feel tiny. You feel abused. You feel like a moron. You feel stupid. Never heard another word about it. A long time later, I was informed that I owed money to the IRS. I'm like, how do I owe money to the IRS? They forgave the debt, and it counted back as income. And I had to pay income tax on the debt. I was so happy to pay that money to the IRS. I don't think anybody had ever been as happy a taxpayer as I was. How do you go from we're going to take the money out of your bank account, and we've got you right where we want you, to forgiving the debt? What happened? That makes no sense. I've never heard of that ever in my life. I know what happened. He spoke a word and the earth melted. The Assyrians flopped over. I couldn't pay the money. God knew I couldn't pay the money. I mean, not every buzzard that's flying around has to land in my yard. Some of them just keep flying, you know? And I just want to encourage you guys with that. In real life, he can speak a word. The earth can melt. He wins. And that's the third point. He intends to be our security because he is going to give us peace through total victory, not just the absence of conflict, not just having them camped outside your city walls forever, but no fight actually happened. Because you know what? That's not peace, is it? That's just a whole lot of stress that God doesn't want us to have. He intends to win. Let's read the last stanza in two chunks. Here's the first one. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease. He makes wars cease. How do you think he does that? He tells us, he breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. He makes war cease because he wins the wars. He is the victor. I love this, especially in the NIV, because it doesn't say he burns the chariots with fire. Translates it a little different and says he burns the shields with fire. Whose shields? Our shields? No, the shields are the enemy. Do you know what that means? It means that they're not just weaponless. It means they're defenseless. It means that suddenly the worst thing in the world happening, this chaos coming into your life, the enemies outside your gates not only can't attack you, but they're left wide open. If you wanted to walk out the front door and take them, you could. The nations are raging and tottering. God is throwing chaos into the camp of the enemy. The very thing that thought it was going to take advantage of the people of God ends up getting conquered by the people of God. Spoiler alert, that's how Second Chronicles 20 ends as well. Favorite chapter in the Bible. Did I say that? I think I did. Everybody should go back and read it. Look, 
God intends for you to share in the victory. The thing that it thinks it's attacking you is terribly deceived. If God is in your city, you are actually, he just, they've brought you victory to your doorstep. All right? That's what's really going on. And then the last chunk of the poem with the famous line, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Pause and think about that. I've heard this verse quoted a lot. And I I now think that the principle is right, but the quote is wrong. Let me explain. Don't get mad, please. If you've done this, I've done it too. Many of us are probably guilty. But you've probably heard this quoted to you or by you, meaning just be still. Just relax. Just have a good soaking time. You know, maybe put on some Jason Upton. I like Table Full of Strangers, Volume 1. If you haven't gotten that album yet, it's really good. And just be still and know that he's God. Just relax. I'm going to submit to you that that is a very biblical and true principle, and we should do that. But that is not what this verse is trying to say. Everybody heard me say that's good and true, and you should do that, right? I'm not saying that you shouldn't. But that is not what this verse is trying to say, because this is a very strong command. It is very strong. And the older English of the Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown commentary, and also Spurgeon, they say it probably means something like this. Leave off to oppose me and vex my people. I am over all for their safety. That's Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. I know, I got some looks. Here's Spurgeon saying, this is probably the, the, the punch of it. Hold off your hands, ye enemies! Exclamation point. Sit down and wait in patience, ye believers! Exclamation point. Acknowledge that Jehovah is God, ye who feel the terrors of his wrath! Exclamation point. That is a world different than sit down and relax, is it not? This is strong language. This is very strong. This is God saying to your enemies, the impending doom, the things outside your city gates, chaos itself, the oceans that are rising up. This is God saying, sit down and shut up. I'm God. And to you, if you are one of his children, if you are in the city that God resides in, this is God saying, hold my grape juice and watch this. Because the fact of the matter is, we see rising oceans, we see, we see enemies coming to destroy us, we see buzzards surrounding our yard, I, I, I hear threats to take my money, I see threats to take my child, but the end result God wants us to know is that I will be exalted. Don't you know how this ends? I will be exalted among the nations, the very nations that are now attacking you, and I will be exalted in the whole earth. Because you know what? when the worst possible thing is actually happening, or if it just looks like impending doom is all around you and the worst possible thing is going to happen very soon, you need to know something. God is about to show off. He's about to show off. And I'll tell you, I think he actually likes doing it. I have wished in my life that he liked doing it less or that he didn't like to do it so frequently and so close together for years of my life. But he's about to show off. And so that implies a response for us. When the oceans are getting higher by the day, and when we see the enemy marching in, the challenge for us is to be ready to praise. Then. Then. Because we're sure that he's our help. Be ready to praise then. Because it has nothing to do with the ocean, does it? 
has nothing to do with the size of the army, has nothing to do with the person on the other end of the phone, has nothing to do with the judge in the black robe, and has everything to do with what your fortress is. And if the Lord of hosts is with us and the God of Jacob is our fortress, I just want to tell you, what the ocean does is truly irrelevant. Truly irrelevant. Hands in pockets, lean against wall, wait. He will help you when the morning comes. Amen? Let's bow our heads one last time. Father God, you are good. We just declare that you are better, you are stronger. God, you are even righteously fiercer than anything that opposes your people. You are the victor. You intend to win. You are our help. We ask you to fight for us. Lord Jesus, we, we just submit. Say, God, I submit. And if I have to, I'll act like a sheep. <laughs> Be my shepherd. God, we just trust you to fight for us like the shepherd fights for the sheep, God. We trust you to take your big, heavy staff in your hand and to stand between us and the things that would do us harm, Lord. You will be exalted. And when you deliver us, which you are sure to do, we will praise you. In Jesus' name, thank you, God. Amen.